Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in History. I am your host, Rob Denning. Today, I am speaking with Jamie Goodall about her new book, Pirates of the Chesapeake Bay, From the Colonial Era to the Oyster Wars, which was just published in February of 2020 by the History Press. Jamie Goodall, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, before we get too far into the book, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I currently work as a historian at the U.S. Army Center of Military History. I just started that job actually in February. Um, I have my Ph.D. in history from The Ohio State University with specializations in early America, Atlantic world, and military histories. And I have my bachelor's and master's degrees from Appalachian State University in archaeology and museum studies, respectively. Well, you've got the new book and the new job happening at the same time. That must be quite exciting for you. It is. It's a lot to to deal with at the same time. Great. And can you tell us a little bit about uh, where the book came from? How did you come to research the uh, Pirates in the Chesapeake? So my doctoral dissertation research was on Pirates of the Caribbean, and I was at the National Council of on public history conference in Baltimore a few years ago. And I was approached by an editor there who was interested in publishing a local history on piracy here in the Chesapeake Bay region. And she asked me if I would be interested in researching that and writing a book for them. And of course, I was like, yes, I need a break from my dissertation. This would be an awesome way to do that. It's still dealing with piracy and privateering but I get a chance to step away from the doctoral dissertation research and get to know the area that I'm living in a little bit better. Oh, that's great. And so you were actually living in the Chesapeake area at that time? Uh, I was moving there. Uh, I had just taken the job with Stevenson University at the time. Oh, okay, great. I I see what you're saying. So uh, let's talk about the book here. So the book is uh, written roughly chronologically. So let's kind of get into it. Uh, We'll kind of start with the beginning and work our way to the end here. So when you're in the introduction, you start off by talking about a particular person. Why did you choose William Claiborne and what did he have? What was the significance to your overall study? So William Claiborne, he is the first recorded. pirate we have in the Chesapeake Bay region. Um, The actions of Claiborne and his associates were the first recorded convictions and executions of piracy in the Chesapeake region. But of course, they would not be the last. So I I figured if we're going to tell the story of piracy and privateering in the Chesapeake Bay region, we have to go all the way to the very beginnings. Yeah, and one of the things that jumped out at me about this book is that it, it really in some ways it's different from our traditional kind of storylines about piracy because, you know, it's different from the golden age of piracy as it's so-called in the Caribbean where you've got the, uh, you know, Captain Morgan laying waste to the Spanish main and all of that. This is a very different story. This seems to be more of a story of this kind of a combination of smuggling and, um, you know, murder. <laughs> there's some, there's a lot of that stuff kind of going on here. So can you tell us a little bit about how you kind of defined piracy in this book? So I define piracy, I, I broke the introduction up because, because it is a story. 
I broke the introduction into um, characters, setting, and conflict. And so when we're talking about the pirates, the way that I have defined them is that they were really commerce raiders. And this takes you all the way from the Elizabethan sea dogs through the so-called golden age of piracy, all the way in the Chesapeake Bay region to the oyster wars. Uh, These pirates, of course, were called many things uh, throughout history, and the terminology was pretty loose in terms of, while we might look back historically and say that there were distinct definitions for each of these terms, the reality is that when you look at the records, a lot of times the uh, contemporaries were using the terms interchangeably. So things like corsairs, buccaneers, privateers, or even just rebels. Um, so pirates, we know mainly operated on the open seas, but they were also known to make use of rivers and land to support their operations. So I thought that that was a very interesting way to bring the Chesapeake into this story. Uh, all of the tributaries and, and rivers and such that spawned from the Chesapeake Bay region. Um, and so I, I focused the, the bulk of the story on the piratical depredations of the golden age, but I also try to look at uh, piracy in privateering during major conflicts. So the American Revolution, the War of 1812, the American Civil War. Um, and we know that most pirates didn't start out as pirates. Uh, a lot of them started out as merchant marines or sailors with the Royal Navy who frequently turned pirate when given the chance. Um, or they were just, you know, your average seafarer who, for whatever reason, got caught up in piracy, um, whether that was voluntarily or not. <laughs> right. And so when you're talking about pirates and privateers, what what is the difference in, in your mind between the pirate and the privateer? So for me, it's a technicality. Technically, there are only two things that separated a pirate and a privateer, and that was perspective and a letter of mark. And those letters of mark weren't always legitimate, um, especially depending on the time and circumstance. Governors might issue letters of mark to uh, individuals to make them privateers for uh, security, uh, but they might not have had the authority granted to them from the crown to issue that letter of mark. Um, so, and you know, if we think about perspective. Uh, The English might look at their individuals as privateers who are uh, legally permitted to use personal vessels to attack enemy ships to disrupt trade during war. But of course, those whose ships were attacked and plundered would look at those individuals and call them pirates. And the Spanish very frequently referred to the privateers as nothing better than, than pirates. Yeah, and I thought that was an interesting distinction. I really liked the way you phrased it. Uh, you phrased it here and in the book where you said that there were two things that separated a privateer perspective and the letter of Mark. I think that's a really good way to put that because really, I mean, even the pirates and the privateers themselves, they themselves had skewed ver- visions of what they were doing. And so it's it's an interesting uh, way to phrase that. And so, and so what were these pirates, privateers, you know, whatever they choose to call themselves or what other, whatever other people choose to call them, what were these people up to overall? What was their overarching goals? What were their uh, intentions? 
for some of the pirates, it was just a get-rich-quick scheme. They they heard the fantastical tales of individuals like Captain Kidd or Henry Avery and decided that they wanted in on that. A lot of times, the pirates, it was just a matter of course. Like I said, some of them started out as merchant marines and members of the Royal Navy who simply got tired of the ways that they were treated on board those ships. They were frequently uh, without proper food or medical care. They often had their pay withheld. So mutiny was not uncommon. And the idea, again, of turning pirate was very fruitful in their minds. Um, For some, I think they became pirates just for the adventure. So they, you know, like Stead Bonnet, who had a midlife crisis and just decided, you know what, being a pirate sounds like a really great idea. I'm tired of my wife. I'm tired of my job. I'm going to buy a ship and hire a crew. So adventure was something else that might draw somebody to the world of piracy. Yeah, and I think the many biographies of different pirates or privateers uh, that you've assembled in this book, I think really tells that story, that there are a lot of different motivations behind it, whether it's to get rich, whether it's just adventure, whether you just kind of stumbled into it because of a series of either bad luck or good luck, or depending on how you want to look <laughs> at it. But there, there does seem to be a pretty broad array of reasons why people would get into the piracy game. And I think that comes across really well in the book. So uh, as we, as I mentioned before, I mean, kind of the, the popular opinion, the golden age of piracy is people in the Caribbean and all that. So why, why was the Chesapeake so attractive for these pirates? So if we think about the Chesapeake Bay, it's a really large region, actually. It encompasses both Maryland and Virginia. And if I'm not mistaken, the bay extends somewhere around 200 miles between Haver de Grace, Maryland in the north to Virginia Beach, Virginia in the south. Um, the Chesapeake, it was just between accessibility and location. It made it very convenient, uh, a very convenient place for importing and exporting goods and people throughout the Atlantic world. Um, uh, so I think the economy of the Chesapeake, the region's accessibility, uh, both of those things really made the Chesapeake an ideal region for piracy. Um, especially when we think about the profitability of tobacco, for example, which grew uh, very easily in the Chesapeake region. Um, And then the access to great oyster beds uh, that were not depleted the way that oyster beds of New England were um, made for great uh, oyster piracy. So um, between the economy and the location, I think that's what made the Chesapeake Bay such a rich area for piracy and privateering. Yeah, I hadn't heard the term of oyster piracy <laughs> until I until I got to know your book here. So we'll we'll get to the oyster wars here um, in a little bit. But let's start at the beginning here. So you your book is organized roughly chronologically, and so can what can you tell us about piracy in the Chesapeake during the uh, America the, the colonial period before the American Revolution? So this is where we have a lot of the more well-known names like Captain Kidd, Black Sam Bellamy, uh, Blackbeard. But we also have lesser-known figures like Richard Engel, Roger McKeeley, John James. Um, This is really where we get pirates who take advantage of the incessant warfare that occurs between England uh, and their uh, 
European counterparts. So you have Anglo-French wars, you have Anglo-Dutch wars, you have the Anglo-Spanish wars, uh, Franco-Dutch wars, like everybody is constantly in conflict at some point with each other. And so these pirates are really taking advantage of that tumultuous situation. Um, this is where they're really engaged in targeting um, trade uh, and in particular commodities like silks, spices, uh, enslaved peoples. Um, of course, they would love to go for the treasure ships, but more often than not, they're actually going for your average uh, merchant vessel instead because they were much easier to attack. Um, and they were able to take those goods and fence them throughout various parts of the Atlantic world. So taverns throughout the Caribbean and the North American mainland were really great places to fence their loot. Yeah, and this that section on the uh, the colonial era introduced me to a lot of uh, names that I never heard before. You, like you said, there are some that are familiar with Captain Keard, Kid and Blackbeard, but there were also a bunch of others. Also, like there were um, some. Um, there was a, I believe, a former slave was one of the pirates that would that that uh, was arrested. <laughs> I, I'm I probably I, after reading so many names like uh, with different time periods, I might be getting it mixed up with one of the other time periods. But what, that, was there also a, a group of four? I believe it was that um, where one of them was a runaway slave or something like that. Yeah. Um, so there was a group of individuals that. Uh, we believe were former slaves. Um, it was not unusual for enslaved Africans to be uh, put on board uh, ships. Uh, pirates, some pirates would uh, engage the enslaved peoples as members of their crew. Other times that they would just take the enslaved peoples and sell them as commodities. Um, there's the instance, uh, for example, where uh, Richard Engel and his associates uh, rob a man named Cornwallis, and they take four of his enslaved uh, individuals and 12 of his men and maidservants. Uh, and it's unclear uh, what ends up happening to those individuals. Um then there's also the story of Edward Davis, Lionel Delawayford, John Hinson, and Peter Cloyes. Um, Peter Cloyes was an enslaved black man who joined up with Edward Davis and the others. Uh, and the four men made their way down the Chesapeake uh, in 1688. Uh, and they were accompanied by a treasure trove of goods. Um, Davis had three bags of Spanish pieces of eight. Uh, some silk stockings, expensive linens. Uh, Peter Cloyes had uh, several hundred pieces of eight, some broken silver. Um, altogether, the men had goods valued at over 2,300 pounds. And so it's, it's interesting to follow them in their exploits uh, and to know that they brought an enslaved man with them to serve not to serve them, but to be a partner with them. Yeah, that was the story that I was thinking of. That's what I was trying to remember. I thought that was th that particular story stood out to me that they were just kind of found floating 
you know, down the river, so to speak, with uh, with with their their barge piled high with stuff, and they were caught because somebody looked at them and thought, "Wait a minute, they have a lot of chests <laughs> that 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 doesn't look right," and so yeah. they they uh, they stopped the boat and uh, real and discovered all this money and all that. That was a really interesting story, and I think that um, is, I mean, that's just one of the interesting stories that uh, that you've got in that section there. So um, let's. So the next section in your book, you start talking about the American Revolution. Um, it's interesting to me. This is the part where the book kind of departs from my understanding of piracy, because again, my I'm not an expert on piracy, but my image of it is kind of colored by the golden age and all of that. And usually, we think of the golden age of piracy ending in what this. 1600s, maybe early 1700s, mm-hmm. but you're talking, but the rest of your book is carrying it forward all the way almost until the 20th century. And so this is the, the, these, these re- upcoming parts of the books are the ones that were kind of all the new material for me. And I thought this was really interesting. So can you tell, what can you tell us about the uh, piracy in the Chesapeake during the American revolutionary era? Yeah. So I call them pirates of the revolution, but of course they were considered by the uh, American government to be privateers, uh, obviously patriots, um, but there are also loyalists engaged in, in privateering and pirating. And I call them pirates of the revolution simply because of course the English look on them as pirates because they look at the colonists as being in rebellion. So they don't recognize the legitimacy of the privateers' letters of mark from the uh, provincial government. Um, I think one of the more interesting stories is uh, about uh, Marmaduke Mister. Um, he and I believe it was his son or his father, I'm trying to remember, um, his nephew, that's what it was. Uh, Marmaduke Mister and his nephew Stephen. Uh, tried to take the place of Joseph Wheland, who was a, a very well-known figure throughout the, the revolution um, and former shipmate, actually. Marmaduke Mister had served on one of Wheland's ships. Um, Wheland had operated as a loyalist picaroon, but the Misters were much more concerned with personal profit so they're sort of like the the privateers who are in it for personal gain. Um, so they're operating off of the uh, Animessex River near Somerset County, Maryland. And they had developed quite the reputation of being active cruisers along the lower parts of the Chesapeake Bay. Um, and it was not uncommon for them to sail throughout the, the bay and sack various plantations. Um seizing vessels coming in and out of the region. Um, at one point, I believe the misters actually blockaded the entire area of Nanticoke. Um, and many, so the fact of the matter is that the misters were not just preying on English ships. <laughs> they were preying on any ship or any body that they could. Um, many within the Bay demanded that the government put a stop to them, calling them nothing better than pirates. Uh, even though technically the men were operating as privateers. So uh, I find their story to be pretty fascinating in terms of when we talk about the American Revolution, we talk about the privateers as these patriots, 
but we we tend to overlook the individuals who were in it for personal profit and not necessarily out of any sense of patriotism. Yeah, that definitely complicates the story a bit because, like you said, you've got um, these privateers on the side of the the revolutionary government. Um, some of them are in it for altruistic purposes. Some of them are for money, but then there's also privateers that are uh, loyalists and there was some interesting stories in there about loyalists going up against patriots. And I believe, was this a chapter where there was a story about where a loyalist ship ended up attacking another loyalist ship? Or am I thinking of a different section? (laughs) uh, That it was this chapter. Uh, Yeah. It wasn't uncommon for uh, loyalists to accidentally attack other loyalists or even patriots attacking each other uh, just because it was so hard to tell each other apart. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that was one of the things that that was also kind of characterizing the previous chapter too, was just the, the time lag. I mean, this is obviously before, you know, you've got um, telegraphs and all of that stuff. So the, so news gets out late. And so there's this kind of this running theme in, at least in this first couple of chapters, especially where pirates are attacking people that they think are the enemy, but the reality is that there have been treaties signed or, you know, wars have ended or alliances have shifted. And so that really puts a lot of these, even if they're legit privateers, it puts them into a tough spot because they're being, they're, they're, their orders are to go attack certain other types of ships. But, you know, those orders could have been changed in the meantime, and the news just hadn't reached them yet. And so it it creates this this kind of ongoing fog of war almost that must have been very difficult for these these privateers, even if they were legit privateers, to overcome. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, we saw how that played out in the War of 1812 um, with uh, Andrew Jackson not getting information about the end of the war until two weeks later uh, in mm-hmm. the back of New Orleans. <laughs> was uh, celebrated despite the fact that technically it happened after the truce. Yeah, and that actually brings us to the next chapter of the book, which is on the War of 1812. And again, the War of 1812, the first thing that comes to my mind is not piracy. (laughs) So it's interesting to hear about privateers and piracy during the War of 1812, because during the American Revolution, privateers in some ways took the place or maybe complemented the American Navy. But in 1812, there actually is an established American Navy, yet there is still this pirate privateer um, dynamic happening here. So what, what, what can you tell us about the War of 1812 with piracy? Yeah, uh, so we had an established Navy, but it wasn't anywhere near the strength of, say, the British Navy. And so it, it was easier for the fledgling government to license out private individuals, uh, private ships to help supplement the, uh, the nation's Navy. Um, and what we see in the war of 1812 actually is uh, a great, an increase in the number of uh, black individuals involved in these sort of naval exploits. Uh, one of the men, George R. Roberts was a free black man who, um, was a gunner of the Chasseur during their famous blockade of England in August of 1814. Um, and he was actually highly respected uh, throughout the area of Baltimore. The uh, One of the captains uh, noted that he was one of the most courageous and daring of, of the sailors that he worked with. Um, 
He was even one of the few defenders of Baltimore to have his portrait taken by a photographer um, and uh, participated in in annual parades that celebrated the role of privateers and the military during the War of 1812. Um, What this chapter focused more on is what we would consider legitimate privateers in the sense that we're not seeing as much um, personal gain uh, as we are legitimate attempts at putting the British in their place and defending the homeland from British invasion. Yeah, and the story of the privateers blockading England is just incredible to me because, like you said, the, the the might of the British Navy stacked up against the American, the this very very small American Navy, and then the group of privateers. It's just the idea that privateers are putting a blockade around England just is kind of mind boggling, right? <laughs> and so the um and the, one of the other things that kind of, was kind of interesting to me was just how, was going along with that line, it was just how far ranging these privateers were. I mean, we're talking about how some of them were fighting. If I remember correctly, there was, there was some examples of them fighting actually on the great lakes. Um, There was some, some privateers that were based in the Chesapeake. And then of course the ones going around England. And so the, even though we're, we're focusing kind of on the Chesapeake area, it is kind of interesting to think about how far ranging those privateers are, Um, which whether that's, for personal gain, or in this case, like you said, for the War of 1812, it's a bit more cut cut and dry that it's not as much greed or private or financial gain that's driving it. It's a, there's a lot more, um, you know, call of duty, that kind of thing. Right. And so the, then it does get a little bit more messier again, of course, when we get to the American Civil War. Um, the War of 1812 was a bit more cut and dry, but then you get to the Civil War. And how, what is... What is the status of piracy during the American Civil War? Uh, this is, again, a situation in which it depends on which side you were on as to whether or not you considered individuals to be pirates or privateers. Uh, so the Confederates lacked a uh, solidified Navy the way that the Union had. Um, so the Confederate States of America really relied on uh, privateering vessels to help supplement uh, any naval attacks or blockades that they might be putting into place. Um, and so we see that uh, to support the small Confederate States Navy, um, those who agreed to act as commerce raiders and blockade runners, uh, they were granted licenses to support the Confederate States Navy. Uh, It required bonds of $5,000 for privateers manned by fewer than 150 men, and bonds of $10,000 were required for those of 150 men or more. Um, President Jefferson Davis of the Confederate States of America required each letter of mark to be backed by a specific vessel so he wouldn't issue just blank commissions, which I find very interesting given the situation that um, there was still this sense of, I don't know if it's sort of like a code of honor or uh, legal professionalism, that the fact that Davis wouldn't issue these blank commissions, he wanted them to be backed by specific vessels. Um, But it did make 
collecting prize money a little bit easier, knowing that each commission was backed by a specific vessel and that bonds were in place to prevent sort of misdeeds, if you will. Um, Lincoln, of course, responded by issuing his own proclamation, declaring that any of these individuals captured will be held to the laws of the United States for the prevention and punishment of piracy. So basically this meant that any Confederate privateers who were captured would actually be hanged for piracy. Yeah, so it's a dangerous occupation <laughs> all the way up through the uh, Civil War. And um, <clears throat> so in a way, this this felt like a little bit kind of like the Revolutionary War experience where you've got one side versus a, or you've got a, you've, it's basically a lopsided comp- conflict because the Union Navy is formidable at this point. The Confederate right. Navy is not. And so, yeah, it makes sense that they would try to fire, hire merchant vessels or some sort of other vessels to kind of fill in some gaps harass the Union Navy, run the blockade, try to smuggle in uh, supplies, that kind of thing. And um, But it is wartime, and that makes for a very dangerous endeavor. Yeah, and the Chesapeake found itself in quite a difficult situation uh, from the outset of the Civil War, um, because, of course, responding to the situation of Fort Sumter, Virginia passed its Ordinance of Secession in April of 1861, but Maryland remained a member of the United States. And so the Chesapeake Bay literally was divided. Yeah. And did you find, was there any evidence? I don't remember there being any in the book, but did you find any evidence of the union hiring their own privateers or were they able to just rely on the, on the Navy itself? I, I don't have specific evidence, but I, I, it would not surprise me if the union was willing to hire privateers, but I don't have any evidence of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I did like the, it, it. You did paint an interesting picture when you were talking about how the Chesapeake itself was divided because, I mean, you've got the Civil War, you know, splitting states versus states and all of that. But here you've got a body of water and the people that are all kind of working on the same body of water being divided over this issue too. And that, and that would be quite a traumatic experience, I'm sure. And especially when some of them are, are hired to go attack the other side uh, by the Confederate military or the Confederate government that must have caused all kinds of local tensions that um, were probably common across the United States during the civil war. But I'm sure there's kind of a sense of immediacy when you've got kind of the, the sailors that you've been sailing with all your life now going against you, that kind of thing. Yeah, especially since Maryland, uh, particularly in the Baltimore region, um, there were a number of individuals who supported their Southern brethren, um, going so far as to call for Maryland's secession. So you have conflict within Maryland as well as to whether or not they support Virginia and the Confederate States of America or whether they, being a member of the Union, are supporting the Union. Did you get a sense uh, in the research that the Confederate privateers were doing this out of a sense of loyalty to the home state? Were, were they kind of wrapped up in the, the cause, so to speak, of the Confederacy? Or do you, did you get a sense that they, a lot of them were just more motivated by, uh, you know, the promise of, of wealth? Or, the, or, or did, did, you see, did you see any kind of trends along those lines? Um, it seemed that for the most part, those privateers engaged with the Confederate States of America really were doing it out of um, 
again, a sense of, of duty or, or of honor to the cause. And so the fact that they're willing to put up the money, the bonds to even become privateers, um, says a lot about the people who owned the vessels, um, and the crews willing to man those vessels. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. And so after the Civil War ended, of course, obviously with the Union victory, uh, for those listeners that aren't sure, <laughs> uh, the Union wins. And so after that, uh, the war warfare dies down. But as you point out in the last chapter of the book, there actually is ongoing conflict in the Chesapeake um, that in in ways that, that look a lot like piracy. And uh, you, you go so far as to call them pirates. And so can you tell us a little bit about what we're calling the Oyster Wars in the latter half of the 19th century? Yeah, the Oyster Wars are very interesting. Um, essentially, what happens is you have a couple of different things going on. Uh, first, you have New Englanders coming down to the Chesapeake Bay to uh, oyster fish because they've depleted their oyster resources. Um, and so you have the Maryland and Virginia governments passing laws to prevent those New Englanders from coming down and essentially what they were considering stealing their oysters. Um, then you have a situation where you have two different kinds of oyster fishing. You have dredging and you have tonging. Tonging was much more uh, preferred, by, uh, particularly by the governments, because it was the least disruptive of the oyster beds, where dredging would literally, you know, you would dredge through an entire oyster bed. So it was very disruptive and often prevented the oysters from reseeding themselves. Um, so throughout the 1830s and 40s, um, you not only have Maryland and Virginia passing laws limiting oyster harvesting to state residents only, but you also have them limiting uh, oyster fishing to just tonging, trying to prevent the dredging. And so anyone who violated these oyster laws became known in the press and by the public as oyster pirates. Um, and so... Throughout the 18, I would say, post-Civil War, technically. So throughout the 1870s, 1880s, um, the governors of Maryland and Virginia, particularly Virginia's Governor William Cameron, um, launched an ongoing conflict between the government and the lawless oyster pirates of the Chesapeake Bay. And these come to be known as the Oyster Wars. And so how do those oyster wars play out? So the first oyster war is in 1882. And this particular oyster war takes place particularly within Virginia's borders. Um, so Governor Cameron decides to uh, put together a group of volunteers, equip them, um, arm them, and then he accompanied them on board the ship, the Victoria J. Pede. Um, and Cameron decided to uh, force the oyster dredgers to surrender um, by confronting them with a display of force. And he believed that if he took physical action, it'd be more effective than trying to enforce the laws through empty threats and failed legal proceedings. Um, 
And so the first Oyster War was a success for uh, Cameron, at least initially. There were a total of 59 dredgers captured in his initial raid. 46 of them got sentenced to one-year prison terms. Um, And the governor, since many of the men uh, offered themselves up uh, so sympathetically, um, Governor Cameron exercised his power of clemency and commuted the sentences of most of the dredgers to just 60 days um, and pardoning most of them. Um, but uh, this ultimately was a failure for Cameron because the state Supreme Court of Appeals decided that the raid uh, was illegal because the uh, boat owners uh, were not adequately represented in the trial compared to the captains and the crews of the ship. And so uh, his attempt was not very effective. So this leads to a second oyster war in 1883, where he prepares for a second raid, much like he did for the first one. Um, Again, he puts together a crew, uh, again, uh, on board the Victoria JP. He even brings newspaper reporters along with him uh, because he believes that this is going to be so successful. Um, But unfortunately for him, Mo- like this raid does not go according to plan. Uh, and most of the oyster dredgers that he plans to catch are able to flee before he's able to set up his sting. And my favorite part about the oyster wars is the story of what happens after he loses 50 oyster ships. Uh, Governor Cameron was like, I'm not about to let this raid be wasted. Um, by God, I'm going to catch me some oyster pirates. And uh, he witnesses a pirate vessel called the Dancing Molly. And he saw that the men of the dredge boat were on shore searching for wood. So he thought, oh, it'll be so easy to capture this vessel because there should only be like one or two men left on board. uh, Not enough to sail this vessel away. Um, What he didn't know was that the captain had brought his wife and two daughters along and they remained inside the dredge boat while the men were on shore. And all three of the women turned out to be very skilled seafarers themselves. So when Governor Cameron began to approach the Dancing Molly, the women ignored his warning shots and escaped from the Virginia waters to Maryland waters. And according to one of the reporters who was along for the ride, uh, spectators along the Virginia shore actually started cheering for the dancing Molly when they found out that it was crewed by three women. And this of course was a particularly humiliating defeat for the governor. Um, And of course he didn't give up and we see a whole series of uh, future conflicts throughout the 1880s into the 1890s. Um, The deadliest oyster war occurring between 1888 and 1894. Um, These oyster wars technically go on all the way through the 1950s. Yeah, I really like the image of the people standing on the shoreline cheering as the three women get away from the uh, from the governor in their in their oyster ship. That was really a a good image. And so you uh, end the book by talking about how the oyster wars go all the way up into the 1950s. And that's that was one of the another kind of mind boggling part of this was the idea that 
there were incidences, incidents, incidents of piracy or that we could classify as piracy happening as late as the 1950s. You would, I mean, again, with kind of the stereotypical view of the golden age of piracy, you know, we're should be hundreds of years past that by this point, but the idea that that's still happening um, also kind of helps to reframe a lot of other issues because piracy is I mean, piracy still exists today. I mean, there's piracy all around the world uh, with ships being attacked and all of that. And so it obviously it shouldn't be a surprise, I suppose that there's those types of incidents happening until the 1950s, but it is still interesting to think about. Yeah. And um, so are there any uh, other big concepts of the book that um, we haven't touched on yet? Uh, no, I mean, I, I think we covered the the majority of it, um, or at least gave a, a nice outline of it. Yeah, um, and I want <clears throat> excuse me, and I was just curious. I mean, this book covers a huge span of time from the 1620s ish up until the turn of the 20th century ish, all the way up to the 1950s, if you want to push it that far. That's a huge time span. And I was just curious, how, what sources did you find to cover all of these different stories over this huge length of time? What were the types of sources that you were looking at? Uh, So I looked at a lot of historical newspapers. That was really helpful. Um, Court and legal proceedings, particularly during the colonial era. Um, There have been uh, some books. There, There was a book that was published on the Oyster War specifically, which was really useful to me. Um, and then there's also another book on pirates of the Chesapeake region, uh, which was much longer, much more academic. Um, and that was very helpful to me, but really it was the legal proceedings, the newspapers, um, and, and things of that nature that were really helpful to me in putting the stories together. Yeah, the legal proceedings they uh, they those often do provide a wealth of detail, especially when it comes to kind of the ins and outs of what happened. One of the interesting parts, another interesting part, especially in the earlier chapters, was the sense that a lot of the pirates they kind of came out of nowhere and then disappeared after the incidents were done. Yeah, which is kind of makes sense if you're using legal cases because the legal documentation is only going to document the specific instance that they're talking about, and so it really wouldn't give too much detail about where they came from or where they went. But that was an interesting kind of, and it, it was a fact of life, I'm sure, for people that weren't that that weren't involved with piracy or privateering. It's just that the nature of that era, where records were not very well kept, and so you rely on basically all you can find. Yeah, and that that's where the newspapers were really helpful too, because they sort of tried to. Uh, you could take the legal proceedings, but then the newspapers might tell a little bit more about what happened um, because they're following the case. Right. Okay, well, we've uh, taken up a lot of your time here. So what's next for you? Do you have any other upcoming projects that you're working on? I'm still working on turning my doctoral dissertation into a book manuscript. uh, So that focuses on parts of the Caribbean. Um, But I'm also, I I really enjoyed writing this local history. And I've been thinking a lot about proposing a book to the history press again, uh, this time focusing on piracy and privateering in the mid-Atlantic region, so New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, that sort of uh, region, particularly New York, because they had such a great connection with the Pirates of Madagascar. Um, So uh, that might be something in the future for me. 
Oh, that'll be really interesting. And I, I, I look forward to uh, seeing that one. <laughs> well, I look forward to all of them, but uh, that one, that one would be interesting too. I, I remember reading at one point in your book, you said that uh, New York was a huge, um, maybe not a haven, but it was a market that a lot of pirates and privateers sailed through. And it's yeah. always interesting to think about New York as being the type of place because yeah, you tend to think of the Bahamas or some sort of secret islands in the Caribbean, but the idea that they're just sailing brazenly into <laughs> these large East coast <laughs> cities just feels kind of incredible. All right. Well, thank you for taking time to talk to us about your book today, Jimmy. Thank you for having me. <laughs>